Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 176 for Christmas Day 2008. Drop my rights. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by IWantToBeANerd.com. The Nerds on Site team of IT professionals is looking for nerds with all competencies and skills. Go to www.IWantToBeANerd.com and register for a nerds-only meeting today. And by Audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit AudiblePodcasts.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now. Yes, the show that never sleeps. Yes, a Christmas Day edition. I'm Leo Laporte, and Steve Gibson is with us. And just in case you're worried, we did not record this on Christmas Day. Hi, Steve Gibson. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Leo. Great to be back with you. We are not working on Christmas. We're taking some time off. You're going to be with your family for Christmas? Yes, I am. Good. That's nice. Me too. uh, I'll be in France. Yes, you're going to really be with your family. Yeah, we Reunited miss our daughter. for the first time in a while. Oh, let me tell you, we really miss her. It's been uh, it's been hard uh, to have her in France for a whole year when she's, you know, only 16. We didn't expect this. But uh, she's having a great time, and uh, I, I'm sure we'll come back reporting wonderful things. And uh, with lots of pictures, I'm bringing the new uh, Canon 5D Mark II with me. So uh, I'm going to have some beautiful shots of Paris at Christmas time. Very cool. So what in possible securities topics could we talk about today? Well, um, we're going to discuss some technology which was rather quietly added to Windows XP when XP was released. And a Microsoft engineer who is very security aware made a blog posting about four years ago where he talked about a little utility he had created called Drop My Rights. Mm-hmm. And it it takes advantage of some of the new technology. Remember that Microsoft was ballyhooing all the great security features in XP and how it would be by far the most secure operating system they had ever made. Of course, that ended up not being true. And I argued at the time that that's not something anyone can say ahead of time. Right. It's something that only history can demonstrate. Uh, and in this case, you know, I was correct. A- XP initially was a catastrophe, but there is a very cool technology. And this is sort of a, I guess I would call it a poor man's, well, very poor man's sandboxy, but it's a, it's a technology that allows individual applications to not run with admin rights, even though you are running with admin rights. Mm. So I'm going to explain what the technology is in XP um, and talk about what Drop My Rights does, how it works, how to use it for certainly for the people who aren't don't have the opportunity to use Sandboxy or for people who are really belt and suspenders people. Um, I'm using Drop My Rights and Sandboxy because at the moment I should say because um, it's it's even better than than one or the other by themselves, 
But I've also had some dialogue with Ronan asking him, why exactly doesn't Sandboxy have this built in? Mm. <laughs> so we're going to talk about that. Great. I can't wait. That sounds really, really interesting. Uh, we'll also uh, get some security news, I'm sure, and updates. Yep. But before we do that, I do want to mention our friends, our good friends, our good buddies at Astaro.com. Astaro, of course, is the manufacturer of the Astaro Security Gateway at ASTARO.com. And uh, I just wanted to uh, mention, as we come to the end of life of the uh, Cisco Picks, that this is a really good time to switch to the Astaro uh, solution. ASTARO.com. They have a 20% uh, deal for people who trade in their old Cisco Picks for a brand new Astaro Security Gateway. Their line of products conclude, provide complete perimeter security. It's a single, easy-to-use appliance. Uh, that does just a, a fantastic job of uh, protecting you uh, in so many different ways. So check it out if you're a Pix user uh, with you know who's been orphaned recently, and if you're not, maybe you maybe you don't have unified threat management in your business. The ASG is a great choice, best of breed, commercial and open source software to do everything you need: complete VPN capabilities, intrusion protection. Content filtering, including instant messenger and peer-to-peer and industrial strength firewall, of course. Signing, encryption and decryption right through the box. Um, Version 7 of the Staro Security Gateway is just something else, including SSL VPN. Scalability via clustering. Find out more by calling 877, the number 4 A-S-T-A-R-O, 877-427-8277. Six, And if you're a non-commercial user, go to astaro.com slash security now. And you can download Astaro uh, right now for your uh, non-commercial use. It's a great way to take a look at it. There's even a VMware um, appliance that you can download for, which makes it really easy. We thank Astaro for their support of Security Now. And we look forward to a new year, 2009, working together to secure enterprises all over the world. ASTARO.com. Thanks for your support. All right, Steve, uh, now we are pre-recording this several weeks before the show airs, so any security news we give you is going to be, well, not news. (laughs) Although there were uh, some interesting things that I found that I wanted to share with people, just sort of of a security newsy nature without being like, oh, my God, you got to immediately update your... It's not breaking news. (laughs) Where the latest... Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's been a, a Trojan around for a long time called DNS changer. And this has been something which likes to get into people's machines and change their DNS settings because, and in fact, I've, I've run across some individuals whose DNS settings were changed away from their ISP's default to some bizarre bad DNS server somewhere. And now we know from having talked about the Kaminsky problem that getting spoofed dns is a really bad thing because your browser will show you the proper url you'll 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 look at www.paypal.com and see that it's typed incorrectly with no spelling typos and and you'll think you're there but in fact you're not if you know you your your browser's hooked up to a different ip for paypal.com because it got the address from a spoofed DNS, either because 
you're using your real server that is carrying spoofed information. And we know that today only, um, well, only, set, but that's about 75% of servers have been patched to, to render spoofing much more difficult, but that leaves 25% on the internet that are still able to be spoofed. That's just stunning means, that that number is still so high after all. This. Yeah, it is amazing. And it's, yeah. I'm glad I've invested that as I have in my, in my DNS spoofability test that we'll be showing, showing to our listeners here in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, but the other way this could happen is if your system has been reconfigured to go off to a, a deliberately malicious DNS server, you wouldn't know it. And in fact, that DNS server could serve valid DNS except for those specific domains that it wishes to, to commandeer. So, for example, if you, if you gave it you know, myhappypuppy.com, it would send you back the IP, the proper IP of myhappypuppy.com. But if you give it bankofamerica.com, it sends you to its clone of the Bank America site and collects your credentials and performs all kinds of bad stuff. Mm. So, you know, this is a problem. Well, what's new is about this DNS changer Trojan is fascinating. The latest version is installing a valid NDIS driver. NDIS is one of the lower networking layers that's always been part of Windows networking. It's using, what, what I read said, that it was installing a driver that had been used by ArcNet. So it's a valid driver. What the installation of this driver does is essentially gives it raw socket capability. Well, what it's doing with its raw socket capability is pretending to be a DHCP server. So one machine on the LAN gets infected with this Trojan, which installs this networking driver, which then listens for any other system on the LAN to come online. The first thing the system does as it's booting is it sends out a broadcast, a DHCP query essentially saying, hey, I don't have any IP settings. I need them. Well, what happens is the Trojan hears it, as does the real DHCP server. Now there's a race. Who can respond more quickly? And unfortunately, many DHCP servers are running on underpowered machines because they don't need much power. If, if there's a machine that is fast, that's got this Trojan in it, it will respond first, satisfying the outstanding query and essentially reconfiguring the IP settings of any DHCP client to route all DNS to a malicious DNS server. And this, this affects any LAN environment. So, you know, Wendy could set up her laptop at Starbucks and that has this Trojan on it and be sitting there happily computing, not knowing that this is present. Anybody else who then boots their system at the Starbucks network because they're essentially on a LAN, even though it's Wi-Fi, will get themselves redirected from the the actual LAN's DNS server to the malicious one. Wow. And this has been found in the wild, and it is going on now. 
It's not now. We should emphasize it's not automatic if you're on a Starbucks server. But this no, is no, 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 <laughs> nothing against Starbucks. Yeah. I'm drinking their coffee every morning. We don't want to start any rumors here. But if, no, if if you've got this bug on your system, is the point? Yes. So so the idea, though, I mean, I I, drew, I use that as an example to indicate, for example, that even roaming users, right? You know, anybody, any system that is using DHCP as is the default configuration for all Windows systems. You know, my my own oh, network, yeah. I've got static IPs for everything. So I'm manually configuring them and I keep a whole log of every IP that I've 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 configured. But default Windows configurations is just to use DHCP. That's that obtain IP address automatically setting, which is the default. And it means that if there were a rogue DHCP server anywhere on the LAN, it would receive the request, which is a broadcast out on out on Ethernet. There are a set of, of of MAC addresses reserved for, you know, that everybody will receive. So not only does the DHCP server receive it, but anybody else on the LAN receives it. Now, typically, it's just ignored. But if you've got this Trojan on your system, thanks to raw sockets, it's able to intercept it and to to build, as essentially, it's spoofing the reply from the real server and providing the DHCP information to the requesting client, and in this case, it's malicious. So you don't want to let one of these things get anywhere in your network because not it's not just then affecting the one machine, it's affecting all of the machines. All right. Hey, do you not- recommend, do you think, uh-oh, I'm getting a little error message right over your face. That's not very attractive. Do you, do you recommend uh, a static IP over DHCP? In general, I mean, it would avoid uh, this problem. It would avoid this problem. Um, I, I guess or would the function it? of would it avoid the, the DNS issue? Oh yeah, yeah. Because okay. you, yeah, you, uh, you're not using a DHCP. So uh, nothing is setting your DNS, all. right? Yeah, okay. Right, you're you're establishing it manually. I mean, I know you know people that are into their network like to know what the IP is of their different machines. I, you know, I've got three TiVos and. I'm able to connect to them remotely. I've got web browsers or web servers running in my TiVos and also some other you know, third-party hackery that allows me to go in and delete stuff that accumulates and, and play games. So I know what those IPs are. I know the IPs of pretty much all the many machines that I've got in on my LAN. So for me, it's very useful to have them fixed. And there are there are lots of instances where you do want a fixed IP for a machine, the way you would normally do that, still using DHCP, is you are able, for example, in any of the the contemporary consumer routers, to map a MAC address, that is the physical address of the adapter, you're able to, to map a MAC address to a fixed IP, so that so that a computer, a given computer, when it asks for a DHCP, it asks using DHCP for its IP, uh, its local IP on the LAN, the router will say, oh, this is a, a MAC address I know about, so I'm always supposed to give it the following IP. So you, you are able to like use DHCP, which is a dynamic IP assignment, in a static fashion, so that, the, so that given machines always receive the same IPs. So you can sort of achieve the same effect. Oh. That's often used, for example, when you're doing port forwarding. You want to forward right. incoming data to a specific machine behind your network, 
even though it's technically has a dynamic IP, you've told the router, always give this particular machine, recognizing it by its MAC address, the, right. the you know, the same IP. Reserve this IP for this machine. Reserve the IP. Um, yeah, because we have this debate here. I don't want to have to put, if I put static IPs in all of the machines on our on our network here, which there are maybe a dozen, and then another machine comes in. I don't want to have to keep track of all that. So yeah. DHCP re- is so much easier. Right. It requires a lot of juggling. You have to have a, like a reason for doing it or just be an old fart like myself. <laughs> you know, just or likes to know. here's a reason. I mean, we we've just gave you a reason. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in some interesting security news, um, I noted that um, Firefox, the final version of Firefox, version 2, is is scheduled is it's 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 six days in the future from when we're recording this on December 10th. It's scheduled for December 16th release. That'll be the final version two of Firefox, and it loses its anti phishing features. What? It's losing it because it's still using the very first version of the anti phishing API, which Google. Is, is, has told the Firefox folks they're no longer going to they're no longer going to support. Well, that's a step backwards. So, well, but Firefox version two is a step backwards itself. You shouldn't it, be you using know, it. Yeah, yeah. Version three's been out now since June. Um, I've switched. Everyone I know has switched. I would I would advise if you have the ability to switch, you probably should. If you are depending upon the anti phishing feature, which is certainly a nice feature of Firefox. You may want to deliberately not update to the very latest version two that misses that feature. Although you will be informed um, if you up, attempt to update to this final one, that if you do so, if for whatever reason you choose not to go to Firefox version three, you want to stay with two, that you'll be sacrificing their anti-phishing um, interception if you switch up to the very final version of Firefox two. And remember that you know. Then you're on an un, unsupported, from that point on, you're on an unsupported version that will no longer be receiving any security updates or other updates. And so if nothing else has, has talked you into moving from two to three, then uh, I would imagine that would. Yeah. Because, you know, you want to be able to be, be using a, a, a continuously supported browser. And, you know, three is working just fine for everybody. Oh, I love three. Three, three in my opinion, is an improvement. Yep, over over uh, two. And I've got a little YubiKey news. Okay. Um, YubiKey is now being used to authenticate with TrueCrypt. Um, TrueCrypt, of course, we've talked about is the the terrific uh, utility for for encrypting deeply and very strongly encrypting uh, drives or whole drives or partitions and directories and so forth. It's a you know very flexible tool. Um, there is a personal personalization tool that Yubico, the the creators of the YubiKey that we've talked about several times, have now produced. It was originally just an ActiveX control. Now they've they've turned it into a, a little turnkey Windows app. It allows you to do two things. It allows you to basically take over responsibility for your own YubiKey and give it its own new AES key, which is what it uses for generating the one-time only tokens. So that allows you to essentially to take control away from, from Yubico's 
authentication servers if for whatever reason you want to do that for yourself. The other option, which is interesting, and, and, with, and, and this is what TrueCrypt is using, is it allows you to create a 32-character static password. That is, change the way the YubiKey works entirely so that when you press the button on the little USB YubiKey dongle, it spits out a long and absolutely random but never-changing password, 32 characters long. And what's that? what that's useful for is any instance where you need to do offline authentication. For example, if you wanted to use whole drive encryption on like on a laptop so that nobody can use your laptop unless, you know, it's you. Well, you could use TrueCrypt in order to produce the whole drive encryption, which is doing pre-boot encrypt, uh, decryption and pre-boot authentication. The problem is there's no way at that point to have internet access. So you couldn't use the, the normal YubiKey, but so you could use instead this, this YubiKey, which you have, you have changed using their personalization tool to have it emit a 32-character monster random password. People might say, wait, wait a minute, only 32 characters, is that enough? Well, yes. I mean, if it's... If it's That's if pretty it's good. Asked, if it's really it, random... It, Yes, if it would be exactly, it'd be comp- absolutely random. Imagine that you probably get about 64 bits, that is 64 different characters per, you know, 64 different characters per character slot. So 6 bits. And so that's going to be times 32, which is what? Is that 192, I think? So that's 192 random bits. I mean, that is seriously yeah. good yeah. protection, even though it's not changing. Now, the vulnerability is it's a one-time, you know, it's it's the same thing every time. On the other hand, even if somebody saw it, and, and you know, and, and anytime you're typing in a password, it's blanked. But even if they saw it, you know, their eyes would just glaze over. Um, but, you know, passwords are always, are always entered, you know, blanked out, so no one is seeing it anyway. So it's just a, an interesting... Um, How hard option. is it to change? I mean, if you if you decided you wanted to go to a different, you can change it anytime you want to. The personal the the new personalization tool I allows you to yes because I think it's very cool. You could Leo. use it for your WPA key. Remember? Yes, exactly. Uh, you use it for WPA. You, you you the only sensitivity would be to beware of keystroke loggers. A keystroke logger is not a problem with pre-boot authentication because nothing's running at that point. You know, no, there's no OS or anything going at that point. It's just it's just um, TrueCrypt. But you're right, Leo. I mean, you could you could use it to instantly load your a gnarly WPA key mm-hmm. into a system that that you're visiting. Or say, for example, some friends come over. I mean, that we I can have a Yuba we- key and say, here's yes. the key. Yes. Just put this in. Yes. I don't have to divulge it. They won't see it. Yes. That's what I'm going to use my YubiKey for. It's a perfect solution because we've always, we will, you know, many users have said, hey, you know, I've got a, a gnarly password, but, uh, you know, how can I give it to my friends, right. you know, in, in a safe way? So this, so they, they bring their laptop over. You simply put the cursor in the field where it's asking for their password. You touch the little button on the YubiKey. It zaps it in. Then it says confirm it. You do it again. Zaps it in. They're now on your network, you know, and they don't know what it is, and it, it was never in a. It was never disclosed. 
I like that. It's really neat. They're going to sell a lot of YubiKeys with stuff like this. This yeah, this I mean, and again, really and remember that the YubiKey is not expensive. Um, uh, so anyone can get it. Use a personalization tool to turn it from a one-time password into this this 32k. I mean, 32 character random password that you can use anywhere you want something that is you know makes your eyes glaze over when you see it and. And, you know, no one is going to be able to glance at it and then type it in. That's that's just awesome. And finally, the open source password safe utility now supports the YubiKey oh. in, its, in its full normal using Yubico for authentication one time password mode. There's been some dialogue back and forth. Uh, one of our listeners who is a YubiKey user wrote to the author the maintainer of password safe and said, Hey, is there any way you would support the YubiKey? And they now do. So the password safe, which is, um, I think I'm not sure if it's multi-platform in the YubiKey support because he's got two versions in beta right now. Uh-huh. One is one adds you, you, the YubiKey, the other is Linux um, that was doing some experimental stuff. I don't know if the Linux one incorporates the YubiKey support also, but YubiKey support is now part of password safe. That's so that's even cool. better. Yep. Because now, okay, I use that strong password on the YubiKey to unlock password safe, and that can have the WPA key in it. It could also have my true. Oh no, because the TrueCrypt key you need on on, on preboot. So I need three. I need three YubiKeys. Yeah, so- <laughs> They're going to sell a lot of them. That's great. Yeah. That's really great. It's a really nice forward motion. So you put the password safe on your U3, and then the other U, and then it'll say, okay, what's the password? Then you put the YubiKey in the other USB slot. It authenticates. Pull the YubiKey. Put that back in your pocket, and you're done. Yeah, and the way password safe works, uh, as you may know, is that when you minimize it, if you maximize it, it makes you enter it again. And if you've got a gnarly password, that's a real pain. Yeah. So, so you can simply use the YubiKey in order to give it the password again. Just yeah. zap it right back in again. Love it. Love so it's nice authentication. All right. Well, we're going to come back in just a second. We're going to talk about drop my rights. A good thing. Usually you say, I want more rights. Not in this case. Fewer rights are better for security. We'll explain all and uh, talk about this. It's free, right? And I do have a fun spin right story, too. Well, do the spin right story then. <laughs> and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about drop my rights in a bit. Well, this is, this is um, a, a neat guy, Earl Pierce, who whose subject in the email he sent to to me, by way of GRC sales account, it says, just says, Spinrite is amazing. And he said, hi, Steve. I purchased Spinrite in 2006 after hearing about it on the Security Now podcast and used it a few times just in case on my system, but no miracles were apparent. However, a few days ago, my laptop suffered from a severe case of BSD. Oh. I think he means BSOD, blue Blue-sod. screen of death. Yes. So bad that I had to video the screen just to read the BSOD unmountable boot volume message. So it must have just been flickering up very briefly for some bizarre reason. And he had to videotape it and then like single frame his video in order to figure out what the message was. He says, I tried all the usual safe mode yada yada tricks with no luck. Then I remembered Spinrite. After a few warnings about drive heat... Spinrite rebooted, and the system worked great. Wow. You are a wizard, carrier of the wand, Gandalf reborn, <laughs> creator of the best hard drive resurrection tool in the galaxy. I have listened to the other emails you've received and thought, 
Wow, it must be good. But experiencing the miracle in person was amazing. Thanks for all your hard work and long hours. Signed, <laughs> Earl Pierce. Wow, it must be so, good. <laughs> that was a neat message. I just wanted to oh, share. It. That, that is you, that's Earl. a great that's a great message. Well, uh, we're going to take a break and come back and talk about drop my rights. But I want to talk about the nerds for a moment. Our good friends at Nerds on Site. Steve's ridden in the Nerd Mobile, as have I. I've had a nerd uh, escort, a nerve. Uh, a nerd uh, ca- cavalcade. I, I, there were like eight of us in the nerd mobiles. Nerds on site is a really neat company all over the world, by the way. And this is uh, an international uh, company that, uh, well, you can find out more by going to, I want to be a nerd.com. There are uh, essentially the idea is it's hard to, it's hard to, des- hard to describe this. That's why we want you to go to, I want to be a nerd.com. The idea is you're in, you're in business uh, as an IT professional. They they want you to stay in business, but they don't want you to have to worry about all the details of business. So they give you the support you need to do a better job. You stay in business for yourself. You're just not in business by yourself. And that's what's so cool about nerds on site. Uh, they're looking right now for professionals with all kinds of competencies. You name it. They need it from PC and Mac experts, specialties like Cisco, uh, Oracle, fix-it technicians, website designers, programmers. Project managers, sales trainers. I've got a list here. It goes to security experts, antivirus gurus. They really like nerds who are focused on today's small and medium enterprises. It's it's really the the only growing market sector. That's why they want you to work with them. You're still an independent contractor. You're in business by your, for yourself, not by yourself. You focus on what you love to do, not the burdens of running a business. Now, I said international. Let me tell you. Canada, I think that's where they started. That's certainly where I met them. And I know you went up there to visit with them in Toronto. USA, Mexico, England, Australia, South Africa, Bolivia, and India. Nerds on Site has over 250 competencies in their Nerdology University, the UON, University of Nerdology. Uh, so you can polish up your skills. And, you know, this is cool. Let's say you, you go to a client and they say, I, you know, I'm having problems with Exchange Server. And, the, and you're not an expert on that, so you can call another nerd and get that expertise. So you're you're always supported. Look, if you want to find out more, register for a nerds only meeting today. I want to be a nerd.com. I want to be a nerd.com. Say hello to the fr- the friendly nerds at nerds on site. We're both honorary nerds, Steve and I. <laughs> I think that's true. <laughs> In more ways than you could even imagine. So I didn't realize that Drop My Rights uh, was just kind of a side project by a Microsoft employee. I, I had no idea. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's what what I like about it, being Mr. You know, write everything in assembly language and have little tiny applications. What I li- really like about it is that it is also extremely small. Now, okay, the, there's a bunch of links that users are going to probably have to come to security now's page to find our show notes for this episode 176 because the original blog posting from four years ago unfortunately is obsolete the i had to dig around for quite a while to track it down to find where it had gone microsoft had moved it over the course of four years Um, the links that i could find were broken so I, i found everything so there's a bunch of resources relating to this in in this episode 176's show notes. So just go to grc.com slash security now and click the third icon, which is the show notes, and 
that'll take you to the page. Or I'm sure that that um, your team will have uh, also added them uh, to to your site, Leo. Yes, of course. So, um, so uh, my point was that it's a very small little utility that basically leverages technology that has been built in to Windows since XP. Um, Windows has, and we've never really talked about the the security model, the way security functions in Windows. But but frankly, every time I go back in there, because I've I've had to understand it and dig around in there from time to time over the years, every time I re- re- refresh my understanding of everything going on in Windows from a security standpoint, I'm I'm surprised again that it even manages to boot. There is just there is so much stuff happening under under the covers behind the scenes in Windows at an amazingly granular level. There are there are fundamentally two different things um, uh, objects in in the Windows security model. There's this notion of an access token, which 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 is a collection of rights, and then there's a security descriptor, which is a sort of a collection of needs. And so, so when you log in, when a user logs in, based on the, the type of account they have, we talked about, of course, normal users versus admin users, there's guest users, there's, there's limited users, various types of users. Well, the, well the, when the user logs in, the rights that they have are collected together. Users can be a member of groups, and so groups can confer rights onto users that are their members. So there's a, there's a complex set of sort of rights aggregation which occurs when, when a user logs in. Now, once they're logged in, any applications, any processes which they run for, sort of for, like from their own context, from, from the context of, of, their, of their user, they, they confer all of their rights onto that process then anything that the process attempts to do, and I mean pretty much anything, it's checked against the, the sort of like the, right, the, the rights requirements of the things that the process is sort of doing it to. So, for example, files have the so-called security descriptors, directories do, other processes do, individual Threads of execution within the process in individual little execution threads have just security descriptors, as do registry keys and Windows services, and even printers have them, and network shares and interprocess synchronization objects. Basically, sort of everything that is something in Windows has its individual set of requirements for who gets to mess with it, who gets to read it, who gets to write it, who gets to change it, who gets to even browse it, even see that it exists. And so this is there's this high level of granularity and and amazingly when a process is rummaging around doing things, you know, at very high speed in Windows, somehow Windows has time to check all of this. And I mean, on, on an individual action by action level to make sure that the user that started the process that's trying to do whatever it is has the right to do so. Mm. Now, there are there are um, a huge 
like dictionary of 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 sort of privileges that can get conferred on a process. For example, um, uh, like there, there's a restore privilege and a backup privilege, a, a load driver privilege, a shutdown privilege, a debug privilege. You know, even even a privilege to change the system time, so that if you know, so that you could create a user who could do everything except change the time on the system. They just when they when they try to do that, they get you know they can't. They're unable to do that. Um, a debug privilege is very powerful because debugging allows a process to view into the memory of another process, mm-hmm. which is what has to, which is what a, a debugger that is running in Windows inherently has to do is be able to appear into and even go in and muck around in another process's memory space. Now, backing up and, and restoring might sound sort of benign, but what the backup and the restore privileges confer on a process running with like backup and restore rights is they violate any other um, uh, access restrictions for that program. Meaning that, for example, you know, if you want to back up a whole system, well, the whole system might have, you know, a bunch of system files and a bunch of different user you know, d- multiple different users' files. And when you back that hard drive up, you want to know you're backing it all up. You're getting it all, which means that any other sort of restrictions which would prevent one user from being able to see or view another user's files, well, the backup process needs to be able to see everything. So the backup privilege is very powerful. And, of course, there's the sort of the granddaddy of all is the admin privilege, you know, the, the, the overall administrative rights. You know, malware wants to have admin rights because, for example, admins are able to create files in the System32 directory, which is obviously a highly privileged directory. You don't want malware to create files in your System32 directory. Malware is able to term, I mean, admins, somebody with admin rights can terminate a process, meaning that if something were running that, that an admin had created, it would be able to terminate whatever process in the system it wanted to. Um, admins can also disable the Windows firewall. Non-admins are not able to do that. Well, you don't want malware to be able to turn off your Windows firewall if it wants to. Um, and even downloading and writing files to the the um, the system thirty two directory, um, or for example, modifying or deleting keys in 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 the registry. There's a whole branch in the registry called H key local machine. Admins have access to that, but not admins do not. And again, you don't want malware to be able to go in and delete keys from the registry because those are, for example, where 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 Things you care about are are used for for configuring and starting them up when, when you boot Windows. So there there's this there's this notion of of rights that the user has, and and then the things that require the processes that are running on behalf of the user um, uh, to 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 have in order for the um, the operation to be to to be successful and to um, to 
not generate an error back to through the operating system to the application. So what Windows inter um, what wh- what Windows XP added was the ability to on the fly allow these rights to be modified. There's something in a new feature in Windows XP which um, is called software restriction um, policies. Software restriction policies um, essentially allow policies to be applied based on on like the hash of an executable, the executable's name, uh, the location of an executable um, on, on, on the hard drive. So you're able to sort of create broad-based policies for which, which corporate um, IT um, professionals will use in order to sort of lock down the systems and, and, and circumscribe what their users can do. Well, this security guy at Microsoft, uh, Michael Howard was his name, who did this blog posting four years ago. He said, you know, I'm an admin. That is, I want to run with admin rights because of the stuff I'm doing. I'm a power user. I don't want to have to be, you know, logging in and, and, and changing, um, uh, logging out, logging in, changing um, who I am all the time. And, you know, and we know historically it can be annoying to be running as a non-admin user yeah. because of, you know, sometimes there are things you want to be able to do to, you know, like, for example, installing software. I would guess um, most of our users are the type that just say, I want to be the admin. I'm not willing to be a limited user. Yes, exactly. And so what he realized was that is that, that is uh, Michael Howard realized that he could leverage the this rich security model in Windows and the new feature of software restriction policies to create a simple little app that would allow some programs to be demoted from admin rights, mm. even though he was an admin. So normally, as I was explaining, if you're logged in as an administrator, anything you run, anything that, that runs you know, from you is is essentially it inherits the rights that you have but he recognized that some things were extra dangerous and this is sort of this begins to overlap on sandboxy's territory because he realized for example ie you really don't want internet explorer to run as an admin because then anything that it runs has full administrator privileges, and as I was saying, can write to the System32 directory, can terminate processes, can alter the settings to your firewall, and so on. So you'd you'd really want to be able to run some applications with limited rights, and, th- and thus was this concept he came up with of drop my rights. Mm. The idea is it's a simple little utility where you you simply... Um, if you had a shortcut on your desktop, for example, or down in, in, in your quick start tray or under your start menu, if you right click on the shortcut and look at the command it's executing, you'll see some string. You know, it'll say C colon backslash, you know, program files backslash whatever it is, you know, the, the, the path to the executable that ends up with, you know, iExplore.exe or Outlook.exe or Firefox.exe, or Opera.exe, or Outlook.exe. Anyway, you, you're able to prefix that string with drop my rights. 
Exe. So drop my rights is the is actually the thing you're running and you're passing it the path to the executable as its argument. So what happens is it runs and it it creates a a process token that has non-admin rights. That is, it is essentially normally a process token created. For example, the one that it's running under would have your rights. It would have right, your full right. administrative rights. Drop my rights creates a token that has non-admin rights, and then it runs the thing that you would have normally run under those restricted rights. So this is it's and, interesting because this is kind of like the run as command in reverse. Yes, that, 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 that's a very good analogy. It's like run as, whereas instead of like being a limited user who, who wants to run as admin for something, you're, you're saying, I'm normally an admin, but when, and, and the beauty is you're able to set this up with, with your shortcuts so that, so that anytime you run Firefox or Outlook or, or Opera or IE or whatever, it's running with reduced rights. Well, I want to talk so, about this a, a, a little bit more and the implications of it. And I really want to talk to you about the difference between run it, what I do and what most people in, in, in Linux and Unix do, which is run, it, run as a limited user. You know, it's kind of the kind of the, the conventional wisdom. You never run as a super user on, on Linux. Right. And, and we use this escalation, this run as, or in the case of Linux, as you do, or sudo, to escalate versus this de-escalation process which is probably pretty typical Windows user uh, uh, thing. But let, 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 I want to take a little break here because I want to mention Audible.com. It is the holiday season. Now might be a good time to uh, talk about getting a holiday gift. Yes, it's Christmas, but it's not too late to celebrate with Audible.com. One of the things I love about Audible is that you can get the book right away. Uh, AudiblePodcast.com slash security now. Go there right now. Sign up for a gold account. You'll get a credit toward a book absolutely free. Yours to keep even if you don't keep the account. Uh, you could try Audible for a couple of weeks and see how you like it. And this would be a good time to do it. If you're an Audible member right now, you can get the free credit I talked about, any book, and there are 51,000 to choose from. But you can also get this. This is, uh, if did you ever see A Christmas Story? I love A Christmas Story, the classic, you know, uh, Gene Shepard story. It's become the movie to watch on Christmas. Well, you can get the original Gene Shepard story that started it all, Narrated by Dick Cavett, it's called Duel in the Snow, or Red Rider Nails the Cleveland Street Kid. This was the inspiration for the movie, A Christmas Story. It is a beautiful book, very heartwarming. The whole family, I think, I just, I don't maybe this is old-fashioned to me, I just imagine gathering around a fire, Christmas night, you've, you know, you've, you've, you've eaten the turkey, you've opened the presents, now how about a cozy hour and six minutes together listening to this? Better than watching TV, trust me. You know, it really brings the family together. That's that's my plan. We'll be we'll be in France, but I'm I'm planning on listening to this, and it's absolutely free when you're an Audible member. So go to Audible Podcast right now, AudiblePodcast.com/slash/security now. Sign up. There are a ton of books in all categories: business, classics, education, fiction, and nonfiction. I listen to a lot of history, but then when I get tired of history, I listen to mysteries and thrillers. It's all there. Science fiction too. We always talk about the science fiction stories audiblepodcast.com slash security now get your credit toward a free book sign up and then get a second book a member bonus the uh, the true story of a christmas story by gene shepherd he's really writing about his own uh, childhood i think i grew up listening to gene shepherd on wor and i 
It really is what got me, I think, got me into radio. He was an amazing fellow, able to just paint a picture with his voice and his, with his stories. And this is the story that, uh, that is most remembered. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now wishes you and yours a happy holidays and all the best for 2009. And we thank them for making it possible to bring you this show and uh, most of our Twitch shows. Um, without them, I don't think we could, uh, we could afford to, we could afford to do it. Steve Gibson. So uh, just, you know, this is, this is from the day I started using Unix and then later Linux. It was drilled into you. You never, ever log in as super user. You always log in as a normal user. If you should ever need administrator privileges, Linux makes it very easy with a sudo command to do that, to escalate. Wouldn't it be better to do it that way on Windows? Absolutely would be. Um, The problem is that the the two different operating systems, Linux and and Windows sort of came at this from from different directions. That's a good point because with Windows ninety five ninety eight ME, you were always administrator. There was no conception of a separate limited user. Right, and and essentially, you know, it's Microsoft has been trying to impose the security paradigm after the fact. Whereas whereas you know Unix, this notion of being a root user and having you know godlike. Uh, Capabilities. I mean, there, there's always been from day one. There's been an appreciation of the need for security and the notion of user accounts and and the idea of a super user who is is who is absolutely you know not the normal user that you run as. You only go into super user mode when you're wanting to be an, an, an administrator. So you know there you elevate yourself. Well, the point is because the system always evolved that way. All the applications running in a Unix environment uh, made the assumption that their users would not be root, would not be the super user, that they would be a regular, normal, you know, lesser privileged user. Unfortunately, the assumption was reversed under Windows. So applications assumed the way Windows always was, which was, you know, the user was the user. There's only one type of user. This notion of creating a a lower privileged user was something Windows, you know, later in the game said, oh, that's kind of a good idea. Let's do that. The the problem is that most of the developers and programmers, they were all running as admin, so none of their software was being tested as non-admin. So they were making an implicit assumption that everybody was going to be using Windows the way they were, and it turns out then that trying to use their systems as a non-admin created all kinds of problems. Well, I guess it really goes back to DOS. When, uh, in fact, in the earliest days of DOS, you didn't even have other, not only didn't have other users, you didn't have other processes. Before TSRs, there was one thing going on on that computer, and DOS was so brain dead, and that really is the heritage for this whole thing. I mean, right. it began there, whereas Unix always was multi-user, and when anytime you have a multi-user system, you have to have a concepts of permissions and, and, and different levels of, of power and so forth. You well, and so, so what Windows has, Windows, with this use of, of this, this notion of software restriction policy, Windows defines... Um, Five different levels. There's the trusted user, the normal user, a so-called constrained user, an untrusted user, and then disallowed. And so, so those are the, the, the five different levels that an application can, can run under. Trusted is, 
is you know essentially admin, meaning that if you're that, that the application gets to run with any rights that that you otherwise have, those are conferred on the application. Then the normal user is a so-called non-admin, and people who use Drop My Rights will see that there are two options. Um, in addition to normal, you can t- you can ask Drop My Rights to drop them to, but even below those of a constrained user to a, I mean, below those of a normal user to a constrained user or to an untrusted user. Well, untrusted is virtually useless. That those rights are so restricted. And I was, as I was experimenting with this, not even Notepad will run <laughs> as an untrusted application. That's pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> what, could you, what could you do with notepad exactly so so untrusted i don't know if, i don't think anybody will ever be able to get anything to run as an untrusted user i was experimenting with con- constrained and even that is is kind of sketchy is that because these get, programs feel like they have to write to i mean what, what are they, why couldn't they run uh, i don't know what are well, they it, what are they doing it's because they're not developed with right. you know, like with this whole mentality right. of of minimalism, they probably write to the registry, for instance, which would be something you wouldn't want an untrusted program to do. Well, for example, I mean that's a perfect example. A constrained program, if, if, if you use the argument C with drop my rights, then for example, the the whole key in the registry underneath H key current user which is, you know, it's a very rich key full of registry entries. It's read only. Oh, so no, there you go. So no constrained program that is program running as a constrained user is able to modify anything underneath the H key current user. And similarly, anything under the, the so-called user profile directory, that's documents and settings slash administrator, that's completely inaccessible to a constrained program. And even crypto operations, including SSL negotiation, do not work. So that just tells you you can't run a browser under constrained. So I don't want people to to be too concerned about those other two options. Basically, just using Drop My Rights and dropping their application rights to normal, that takes away admin privileges, which takes away, you know, basically all the things you don't want a program to be able to do. And so, for example, I've been using Drop My Rights now for the last few weeks. We discovered it. Um, I've got Eudora running as a non-admin and Firefox running as a non-admin. And they work just fine as a non-admin. Yet the rest of the time, I've got, you know, godlike rights on my system which i need because i'm using i'm using you know i'm you're using writing, notepad <laughs> i'm using notepad now here, here's what's really interesting yeah. is when i again i when i ran back across this i think it might have been like two weeks ago a, a q a question because i've seen people talk about drop my rights i know that you and i have talked about it a couple oh, yeah. times leo but oh, it's yeah. not something we've covered extensively i was looking at this thinking you know why doesn't Sandboxy just add this? Because this seems like a good thing for it to do. Right. So I shot Ronan a note and I said, hey, what about this? And he said, well, first of all, Sandboxy already strips many rights from the programs in the Sandbox. It strips the restore privilege, the backup privilege, which we talked about as being you know very powerful. 
the load driver privilege so that nothing running from anything derived from a sandbox can load a driver. And that's good because you don't want you don't, don't want to be able to do that. The debug privilege, which we talked about, is very powerful. You absolutely don't want a program to be able to reach into other process spaces and muck around with it. And I'm not sure why, Barbara, just because it was there, he removes the system time privilege so that something running in a sandbox is unable to change the time of the system. Um, and I said, okay, cool. What about admin? And he says, well, you know, I really don't want to do what something else has done. And I said, well, I kind of appreciate that, but I think you ought to put it in there. And so it's in the beta oh, right neat. now. Oh, that's neat. Of Sandboxy. I don't know whether the beta will be public. I think it's 3.3.3. I'm using 3.3.2, or maybe it's 3.32, um, but it's in the next one. He sent me a link to it privately so that I could play with it. But under there's now an option that will be in the next version of Sandboxy that incorporates the full strength of Drop My Rights, which Ronan has completely figured out and understands, um, so that you can optionally run anything in a sandbox in a non-administrative context. Now, um, it's worth, however, talking about Drop My Rights for, for example, all of those 16 or all of the 64-bit users who are unable to use Sandboxy. So this is still something moving forward for people who, for whatever reason, aren't using Sandboxy, don't want to use Sandboxy, still makes a huge amount of sense to run. If you're running as an admin normally, by all means, look into Drop My Rights to, to run specific dangerous applications. That is anything that is internet-facing. You're, you know... Your your email and web browsing, maybe you know newsgroup reader, um, uh, uh, instant messaging program, whatever you know. If you like to run as an admin, I'm not going to scold you about it. I mean, I do. Um, then this allows you to bring the rights down of other dangerous programs, so there's less damage that they can do if something tries to take advantage of them, and it's completely free. And because run as is so inconvenient, people are just not going to use, are not going to run as limited users. I have to say, though, it is easier on Vista than it used to be. I mean, it's certainly, it's not doable on XP, but it's not so bad on Vista to run as well, a limited user. Well, and Vista, you know, sort of incorporates this. You know, when we were talking, the time that we have in the past talked about this notion of privilege uh, elevation, mm -hmm. it's when we've talked about user account control, the right. UAC in Vista, because... When, when in Vista, when you log in, the, remember that the user gets two sets of credentials. You you get a you get a limited credentials, which is how you normally run, and there is the option of L being elevated temporarily to privileged credentials, and that's what the UAC essentially allows you to do: is raise your lift your credentials briefly to do something right, that you're, you right. normally don't have permission to. Right. So that's very similar to this. Well, yeah, it's the odd flip around, but it's, it's sort of the evolution of it. Right. But for those of us <clears throat> who are not on Vista, still using XP, have no plans to go to Vista. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, this is a tremendous, nice little, I mean, it's, it's clean and simple. Nothing's like, there's no weight to this at all. It simply launches these apps with reduced rights. Very cool. Well, it sounds like a, a must uh, get absolutely free. Uh, does it run on Vista at all? 
Uh, Probably not. I don't even know. You don't I need don't it. Care. You don't really need it. Yeah. I don't care. Yeah, you don't care. You're, don't care. you're happy. Um, and you're going to use it as sandboxy anyway when, once it comes out. In exactly. It's going to be built into sandboxy here within a few weeks probably. So maybe by the time this episode is being aired, um, I want to just close by saying something that I alluded to before. I think there's a way to do this with policies and not even needing the drop my rights exe. When I during the research I was doing, I said, "Wait a minute." That would make sense. Normally there's only two categories, trusted and disallowed. But I think there's a way to create the additional categories, and if so, then the policy system which automatically you know, which like corporate IT uses for constraining what their users can run. I think normal users could use this and and just automatically have a class of applications get non-admin rights, even if they're running as admin. I'm going to, I don't think I can hold myself back from poking around to this a little bit more yeah. and seeing if maybe I can come up that with That would a, make sense. I mean, I think you should solution. be able to. I be, I, and, you know, you may not have to poke around too much because I bet you, We've got uh, some um, IT types who are running their office exactly that way. Yep. I mean, that's what I would do is use GP edit and, and, and just say, you know, this is how it is. You well, but I've looked and there's only trust no setting. It's allowed. Huh. Isn't that interesting? It's either yes or no. It's a binary. Um, that that seems like something that you really should have to me. I would think so. That's very odd. Well, although you can imagine in an, in an IT um uh, corporate mode they're not letting their users run as admin all their users are being right. run as normal users well, right can you do it the other way around can you say this escalate this program if they you know if they have to run notepad as as, as, as an administrator can you have it escalate <laughs> <laughs> i think you can you know what you do i actually i've done this is you create you create a run as icon Oh sure, exactly. Yeah, and and then you provide credentials on the fly because run right. run as is going to prompt you for your username and password. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. It's oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we operate in DOS. <laughs> so again, if if our users will go either to the um, the twit.tv show notes or or my page, the um, uh, Security Now page, episode one seventy six, I will have. Uh, a page there with links to track this stuff down, and uh, it's just a very nice, cool thing to do. Drop the rights of high-risk programs so that they're not admin, even if you are. I agree. Very cool. Very a slick idea. And I bet you the inst- inspiration for UAC, at least to some degree. Yeah, it was certainly the, the precursor to it. Yeah. You could get more information, as always, on Steve's website, grc.com. That stands for the Gibson Research Corporation. grc.com, you'll find, of course, the show and 16 kilobit versions. If you're bandwidth impaired or the full 64K version, you get the, the, the transcripts so you can uh, read along. Many people like to read along while Steve talks. You can also uh, get the show notes, as he mentioned. We have stuff there for you, including a link to, to Drop My Rights. Um, and let's not forget GRC.com is the home of Spinrite, the world's best file and I'm sorry, disk recovery and maintenance utility. Yay. Yay. Just go to GRC.com. Click that big Spinrite link. While you're there, you'll see a lot of free programs too, like shields up, Wismo, shoot the messenger, decompobulator, all that stuff. Steve does a great job of, uh, of giving back to the community. GRC.com. Merry Christmas, Steve. I hope you're having a wonderful holiday. Uh, and, uh, I thank you for your just it's been such a great three years working with you 
we're in our fourth year now. Yep. And uh, always been a pleasure. And I just, your determination never to miss an episode, even on Christmas Day, blows me away. You're, you're and I guess New Year's Day, too, next week, Next right? week, New Year's Day. New Year's Day! Yeah, we'll do it later in the day. Give you a little time to recover from New Year's right. Eve. Uh, but we'll have it out, of course, uh, for you uh, in time to enjoy. A little revelry on uh, New Year's Day. Steve, have a great holiday, and uh, we'll see you in 2009 for another great year of Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security Now.